Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Effective Teaching Podcast. We are up to episode 65. So if you want the show notes, etc., head over to teacherspd.net slash 65. This is our last episode in a three-part series where I've been talking to Jay all about his Understanding by Design framework. Thank you so much for joining me again, Jay. A pleasure to be with you, Dan, and hello to any of the listeners who were with me in the previous episodes. So, so far, Jay, we've covered you know, the desired learning results and how to determine you know, the kind of evidence uh, that matches up with those desired results. Can you, again, just quickly give us a quick recap of what we've learned so far in our first two episodes uh, before we dive into uh, planning learning experiences today? Sure. Um, understanding by design is basically a curriculum planning framework used to plan units, a year-long curriculum or, or course, or programs of study across the grades. And the focus is on developing and deepening student understanding so that ultimately students can transfer or apply their learning to new situations. We have a three-stage design process that we use for curriculum planning. And in the first episode, I described stage one of backward design, which is where we identify the desired results. We specify our learning goals. We also use something that we uh, refer to as essential questions, open-ended questions that are meant to develop and deepen student understanding through exploration of the questions or inquiry into them. Stage two of backward design is where we uh, think about evidence. Given the goals of stage one, what evidence of learning, skill proficiency, understanding and transfer do we need? Um, and so I, I described stages one and two uh, in the previous uh, two episodes. Yeah, so for those of you who haven't listened to those episodes, please make sure you go back and listen to those episodes. They're episode 63 and 64. Now, Jay, as we get stuck into the planning learning experiences, uh, use an acronym I noticed in the book called, Where, I think it's WHERE2, uh, the acronym. Can you break that down for us in terms of you know, how we go about thinking through our learning experiences with our students? I actually think of WHERE2 as a finer grained um, framework for planning instruction, but it's a good one. So the, the acronym WHERE2, each letter stands for some consideration uh, for good teaching. And many teachers do things like this the framework is just a reminder to consider them. So let's look at the letters briefly. The W asks the question, where are we going in this learning? Why are we going there? And what's expected? So we got three different parts to the W. And this implies that in the beginning of a new unit, I strongly recommend that teachers not only put daily objectives on the board for a lesson, but let the kids know at the end of three weeks, if it's a three-week unit or six weeks or two weeks even, here's what you're going to be asked to do to demonstrate your understanding and your ability to apply your learning. So I'm a strong rec uh, believer in presenting the performance task right in the beginning. Um, where are we going? We want you to be able to explain what true friendship is, to investigate a historical claim, to write a narrative story for younger readers, whatever it is. Um, so the kids know not only the daily objectives, but what they're leading to. Another aspect of the W is why is this important? And that's where when you can create more authentic 
performance tasks or projects, the kids are less likely to ask, why do I have to learn this? Um, and what's expected is where you can and should work with them early in the unit to identify the success criteria or present them the rubric that will be used to evaluate their performance. So they shouldn't have to guess what's in your head, what is quality work, how will my work be graded or judged? They should know that upfront. Clarity about the goals is as important for the learners as it is for the teacher. That's what the W is letting us set out right away. The one more piece of that is, I mentioned in the first episode that when you have essential questions, I recommend posting them in the room. When you have two or three questions posted in the room, they're helping to answer the, answer the question, where are we going? What are we gonna be doing? You're gonna be trying to answer these questions over time. The H of where to refers to hook. For many topics, or some topics we'll teach, I'll say, may not be inherently interesting to kids. And so the H is how do we hook them to get their attention and hopefully keep it around the topic we're teaching? And over the years, I've just met so many teachers with these ingenious hooks, ways of connecting to the kids and sparking their interest. Um, categorically speaking, here are a few types of hooks that we know can get attention. Humor, presenting something that's humorous gets your attention. Presenting um, an anomaly or a discrepant event or something unexpected gets your attention. Um, an emotional appeal can get your attention, telling a story showing a compelling photograph or a short film clip can get your attention. Um, these are the things that hook the mind. And I, I actually wrote a book uh, recently with uh, Dr. Judy Willis and her doctor is an MD and she's a neurologist who spent 25 years in private practice and then went back to school to get a master's in education and became a teacher. Very interesting career path. And she writes about the brain and learning. And one of the things we know about the brain and learning is the brain has an attention filter. There's so much input coming in all the time and your brain has to attend. And she said, if it doesn't get through the attention filter, it's not getting in. So good teachers recognize the importance of capturing students' attention early on. And that's what the hook is meant to do. Permit me to give you a very quick example of how the W and the H come, could come together. Um, I worked with a uh, teacher of mathematics, of maths, uh, who teaches ninth grade, at least in the US. And one of the math strands is statistics. And so I think it was fairly early in the year. And he, he was teaching a, a very short unit on measures of central tendency, mean, median, mode, standard deviation. Not the most intrinsically interesting topic to many uh, 14 or 15 year olds, but here's what he did, which combines the W and the H. At the beginning of the unit, he said, here's what we're gonna be learning. And then he said, I got, a, I got a proposition for you. I'm gonna allow you to tell me how I should calculate your quarterly mathematics grade. All you have to do is tell me whether you want me to use mean, median, or mode to calculate. 
And I thought that was brilliant because the kids are going, well, what's that? And he said, well, look, it can be in your advantage. You can jump two grade levels if you choose the right measure. So right off the bat, and he said, that's going to be part of your final unit test. You have to look at your grades for the, for the quarter and tell me whether you want me to use mean, median, or mode. Um, that to me was brilliant. It gave them a hook about what they were, I mean, uh, 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 they let them know what they were going to learn, let them know partly how their unit would be assessed, and it hooked them because it's in their interest to understand these measures. We can't do it always that elegantly, but, but that's the goal. The E in where to, the first E, is how will we equip the students for their performance? And that actually aligns with the coaching analogy I mentioned earlier. You, you analyze what the task or the performance requires and you plan backward from that in terms of what to teach, given what the students are going to need. So here's another big idea in UBD. Because there's typically too much content and not enough time, my contention is our job is not to cover things because the danger is you could just be talking in class fast and cover more, but the results of too much coverage can be superficial and disconnected learning. And so a large part of UBD is to focus and prioritize our teaching around larger ideas and transferable concepts and processes. We don't have to cover everything there is to cover. So when you're equipping that, that first E, you're focusing and prioritizing the most important things given the ultimate goals of transfer that you're after. The R in where to is an interesting idea that gets a little subtler. The R is how might we help kids rethink or refine or revise? Because, you know, if you think of the phrase coming to understand, it suggests that this is not something you get immediately like that. Coming to understand means over time, you're developing and deepening your understanding of, of big but abstract ideas. And similarly with performance, if you're working on whether it's a work of art or a piece of writing or a complex problem part of STEM, you're not gonna get it perfect the first time. That's why we have a writing process that involves draft and revision. And so that second R asks us to think about how are we gonna help kids pause, get feedback and revise or refine their work or practice the skill so that it becomes, they become more proficient. And I think it's, it's always a quintessential challenge in teaching to have time for that, but you can't afford not to if your goal is understanding and transfer. So it may mean that you're going to have to trim the amount of content you plan to cover to have time to give kids feedback and let them revise or refine or practice some more to get them ready for the game. I met a teacher who had a great analogy, I thought. He, and this is a veteran teacher, high school level. He said, I've learned in my career that I have to, when I plan my units, I have to plan for a speed bump, he calls it, you know, a little bump in the road that invariably I'm not going to be as far as I want to. There would be some things that interfere or some kids just need more help. And so I built in a little time and he said, I use that to 
have kids review, refine, revise. If the kids have got it, we can move ahead. If half the class has got it, they can move ahead. But I need time to make sure that I address those pieces. The second E in where to is around evaluation. And this is particularly where we talk about self-evaluation, self-assessment, and self-reflection. A simple way of doing this is to have a set of questions that kids are expected to respond to during and especially after a major unit of study or after a major performance task. What did you learn well? What areas are still rough? What are you most proud of? What would you do next time differently, knowing what you know now? What mistake did you make that really helped you learn? What, what do you want to accomplish next? These are self-evaluation and reflection questions. And self-directed learners need to learn these, practice these, so that they become internalized. We want them thinking this way on their own without prompting, but we prompt them to get them to become habitual. Finally, the T in um, where to um, has to do with tailoring. I would have used a D for differentiation, but it didn't fit the acronym. But the idea of tailoring is, again, something that the best teachers understand and try to address. Tailor means how might we respond to the differences that we have in learners? I mean, we know that kids vary in terms of their knowledge base coming in, their skill levels, their interests, and even their preferred ways of learning. And while we can't individualize our teaching, unless we have two or three kids only, we can tailor our teaching or differentiate to try to address student interests uh, and student needs. Um, many teachers do this, for instance, where they might have a skill, group, a skill grouping. So kids that need more practice or more direct instruction and modeling get that in a smaller group where some other kids can move on. Um, we can give kids some voice and choice often in performance tasks. Uh, for example, if the goal is argumentation, you might give them choice of the issue, the audience they're trying to persuade, or even the format, because it could be in the form of an essay, a position paper, a letter to the editor, a, a blog post. And so giving kids some voice and choice is another way of differentiating or tailoring. One size fits all teaching is not optimum for all kids. So the best teachers, like the best coaches, do some adjustments and differentiation as part of their teaching. All right, the last letter, O, um, this is an interesting one and I'll, I'll try to be brief. The O has to do with how are you organizing your overall learning plan? And in our book, we wrote about kind of three approaches. Um, there's teacher as tour guide, which is typical uh, instructional sequence, where in history you start from the past and move forward. Or in math, you start from the basic skills and move to more advanced skills. Um, you know, you follow a textbook, you follow a pacing guide on a curriculum map. This is sort of the, the traditional way in which knowledge is, is uh, unfolded for students. But here's an alternative way, which I know in the States is getting a lot more interest. 
And you can frame your teaching around problems or projects. And if you're familiar with project-based learning, project-based learning doesn't start with all the steps and then you put it together at the end. Project-based learning or problem-based learning even more so puts you in the middle of a problem or a project and you've got to solve it or you've got to work on the project. And then what you need to work on is what you learn along the way, but it's driven by the problem or the project. My daughter Maria taught at a school in the US called High Tech High. It's in San Diego, California, and it's all project-based learning for grades nine through 12. You can go to their website, High Tech High, and you'll see what I think are amazing examples of student projects. And their whole curriculum is based around authentic projects. For example, one semester, the entire semester, uh, students who work with my daughter and another teacher, their project was to research, design, and actually construct a tiny house, 300 square feet or less, energy self-sufficient, to be erected in a park in San Diego at a given date. And the rubric for it, by the way, was meeting the San Diego building code. And everything went backward from there. Now, that's kind of an extreme example. Most traditional schools can't do that. Oh, but well, I love that example. I've actually, I plan on doing a similar thing with my son in a couple of years. <laughs> well, no, it, it was, it was a str- extraordinary. Um, and go to High Tech High and you'll see all these projects that students have done. Um, and so that's a different organizational scheme where you're planning backward from some product or project. And then the third part that's, that's maybe more suited to the humanities is the idea of curriculum as story. And here's a quick example of what that might look like. Think about what novelists or mystery writers or filmmakers do to get you into a story. They rarely start with a chronological sequence. Some of the best stories, whether in writing or on film, immerse you into a a situation or they preview something. Um, I remember, you know, some years ago, the Indiana Jones series, the, the first episodes shows young Indiana Jones as a child and, and, the, and he's playing with snakes and he's afraid of snakes. And that's a preview to something that comes much later in the, in the movie. And so curriculum is story is interesting and, and it works in some subject areas. So, for example, um, in history, rather than starting with a chronological march, from the past to the present. What if you started with a very contemporary issue and analyzed it and looked at different positions on it, looked how people were thinking about it and looked at the patterns and then said, well, how have people in the past dealt with the same thing? And the story is, whose story is it? How are they defining the problem? How did they resolve it? What can we learn from the past about our present issue? Um, And so it, in other words, the O refers to how you organize, how you sequence, and how you frame learning. Um, and it's just something to be um, pr- meant to be provocative and to think that there's not just one journey uh, through learning. Thanks, Joe. That's very informative. I think uh, at this point, let's switch now to you telling us more about uh, how you can use this approach, the Understanding by Design framework, to not just create gourmet units, like I like to call them, but actually uh, how can we use it as a whole to train our students to become effective lifelong learners? Well, um, as I mentioned, and I think the first episode, if lifelong learner 
and self-directed learner is one of our long-term transfer goals. And ideally, it would be a goal for the entire school so that we're planning backward, not just one teacher, one unit, but the whole school is planning backward with self-directed learner as as a long-term goal. We would identify things that we want kids to understand about lifelong learning. That would be in stage one. We would have a central questions that we would have on our walls and around the school. What's my goal? How am I doing? What feedback do I need? How do I know when I'm done? What did I learn from this? Um, How do I know what to believe in what I find and so forth? And we would use those routinely. Then in stage two, I would expect to see assessments that involve self-directed learning. So whether it would be through individual or team inquiry projects or project or problem-based learning. In project and problem-based learning, the general emphasis is that the students are gonna self-direct the project within some parameters established by the teacher. So that we're giving them practice in self-directedness. And then in stage three, our teaching needs to often directly teach the skills that they're going to need, but then deliberately step back. And so we're gonna shift from the direct instruction and modeling role of teacher, much more to the coach and feedback giver. So that increasingly the students are doing the directed, uh, directed learning or directing their learning as opposed to waiting passively to be told what to do. Um, um, And then I would also say at the school level or at least at the department or grade level, that teams ought to identify very specific indicators of self-directedness. Use a T-chart again. What would we see in a self-directed learner that we don't see in someone who's not? Those very specific indicators are ones that I would make public to the kids, I would teach toward them, and I'd have the kids self-assess. Are you getting better at critically analyzing what what information you find? Or are you better at self-assessing to know where you are? Are you better at seeking and and acting on feedback from others? So that that these become very overt goals. In other words, we're gonna build towards self-directedness by design. Well, Jay, I want to thank you so much for the time you've given me to go through these three episodes. You've really given a lot of information, a lot of value here for our teachers who are listening. So thank you so much. Uh, My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, of course, uh, for our listeners, if you haven't yet, please make sure you listen to episode 63 and 64. This is episode 65. So if you want the show notes or if you haven't got the workbook yet, you can head to teacherspd.net slash 65 grab the workbook, go into more depth, complete that. If you submit it back to me, you'll get three hours of NESA registered PD, which will also, if you're not from New South Wales, you can get a certificate of completion. It is really a fantastic system that uh, Jay has come up with, obviously with Grant. Make sure you subscribe if you're enjoying this podcast. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. This approach has been one of the things that's really helped me with my programming and my unit design to create really fantastic units of work. And I've got to say, it it really works. It really does help to change the way that you're teaching and to help your students to become lifelong learners and to be able to transfer their understanding and their learning into other contexts, particularly into their life contexts. But uh, as for now, I'll see you next week.